0: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. I tend to read a lot of alienating fiction novels and stories with antagonistic protagonists antiheroes fictions of decline meant to push back against our inclination toward empathy and identification with a story's characters this is not the case with the stories of my guest this week Cara blue adams Kara's linked collection of stories, You Never Get It Back, introduces us to Kate, a young woman raised in New England, who we follow through her 20s and 30s as she leaves college, enters graduate school in the Southwest, and experiences love and loss with a range of characters, including her working-class single mother and slightly unmoored sister. Far from alienating, Kate is the kind of character to which you feel an instant kinship. I found myself wishing I were her friend. It's Kate's thoughtfulness and vulnerability, her strong connections to people she loves and admires that makes her journeys feel like our own, or at least like sounding boards off which we can understand more of our own self-discovery with more nuanced and textured emotions. Cara Blue Adams admires precision in other writers, and her stories are a model of care and exactness with language. There's not a word out of place in her fiction, and yet she allows us to see the messiness of life with open eyes. But as consistent as she is with her precise language, Kara wields the story form with incredible dexterity, producing the punctuated climaxes of the best short story narratives in works that are sometimes a mere handful of sentences. Before I get to my interview with Kara, I'll leave you with the shortest story in the collection, Metaphor which, like everything in this book, carries a depth below the surface that stays heavy with you long after the reading. I know you will adore Kate as I did, and wish for more of her life composed in Kara's hands. Metaphor. He said, The house we argued in front of yesterday burned to the ground. She laughed, shook her head. It felt true. It felt like a metaphor for their entire relationship. No, he said, I mean it. Walk by. There's nothing there anymore. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's a pleasure to welcome Kara Blue Adams to the show. Kara is the author of You Never Get It Back, winner of the John Simmons Award for Short Fiction, selected by Brandon Taylor. Her fiction has appeared in Granta, The Kenyan Review, American Short Fiction, Epoch, and Narrative. She is Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at Seton Hall University. You Never Get It Back is a collection of link stories that follows Kate, a young woman moving through her 20s and 30s, first as a research scientist and later as a budding writer. Raised by her mother, with her slightly adrift sister, Agnes, in rural New England, Kate has pushed a fist through several layers of class ceiling, graduating from Williams College and pursuing a PhD in the hard sciences, but her memories of childhood and her experiences with friends and lovers are catalysts to self-reflection and doubt about her choices. Kate struggles to understand the value of these achievements and worries for her family, who in contrast to her peripatetic journeys through the South and Southwest seem stuck in time and place. These are stories of exquisite observation and the quiet beauty of everyday life. Kate has meaningful experiences. She loves. She loses. She has regret and bliss. But it is her deep well of empathy for others, her caring approach to even those who have wound her, that defines her. She is, for this reader, the best of what makes us impossibly human. Our need for others matched against our desire to be meaningful as a singular person in the world. There's something true about the way she takes in her world. A moment that will last with me comes at the end of the story, seeing clear when Kate's estranged father has died of an overdose. As is the case in so many of these stories, Kate does not distill her father into his failures or the injury he has caused her and her family. She tries to understand him on his own limited terms. In this case, the blank postcards he has sent to her over the years. He wanted to leave me with that, at least, with this metaphor for what he felt but couldn't say. I suspect it was everything he had. In the end, maybe that's all any inheritance ever amounts to. And in the end, maybe it's never enough. I feel lucky to have lived alongside Kate in these stories. Thank you for this collection, Cara, and welcome to Burned by Books.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, I I just really adored this collection, and I had a very strong emotional reading of it. Um, there's a great deal of joy and despair and disappointment and desire, but I didn't know going in that the collection would be so funny. In particular, the relationship between Kate and her mother and sister is a source of some amazingly funny interactions. Would you be willing to start us off by reading the opening of the story, Charity?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I'm so happy to hear that about the, the humor. It's something that I really value in fiction. Charity. I get home to Vermont for my first semester at Williams for winter break after a long, snowy ride on a Greyhound bus, redolent of urine and the alcoholic tang of wet wipes, to find my mother has had a brainstorm. She has amped up the manic gleam of destruction in her eyes. I know what will get everyone for Christmas, she says. She ashes her cigarette and pauses, looks at me. She is referring to her mother and three sisters whom we mostly see on holidays. I sit patiently, trying to seem expectant. When she senses I can't take it anymore, she tells me what our gift is going to be. Nothing, she says. We are sitting at the kitchen table. I am still wearing my wool coat, snow melting in the folds of the hood. Though it is five degrees outside and icicles hang from the eaves, my mother has opened the window to accommodate a fan, which faces away from us, whirring softly, blowing her smoke out of the house. I push my chair back, away from the cold air pocket by the window. My backpack hangs from my shoulder. I shrug it off, set it on the floor. Nothing, I say? Nothing. I look at her and wait. There's more to come, I can tell. They don't deserve anything, she says. They wouldn't know what generosity was if it punched them in the face. (laughs) She offers this up with a pleasure that tells me she's been turning the phrase over and over in her mind until it's acquired a high sheen. We can't really give them nothing, I say. I mean, how would we wrap it? I'm kind of kidding, kind of not. For me, a lot of the joy in Christmas is in the wrapping. I love shiny stick-on bows and curling ribbons, tissue paper and cellophane, all the exuberant excess and waste. Well, my mother concedes, we won't really give them nothing. What we'll do is give money to charity in their names, and then we can write it in a card. She takes a drag from her cigarette and blows the smoke into the window fan. That'll teach them, she says. That'll show them what charity is.
0: (laughs) That is just such a fantastic opening um, and just sets up Kate's mother so beautifully. Um, It also reminds me that there is is that aspect, I think, in every family, that sense that even in our our best moments, there are times in which we want to stick a finger in the painful (laughs) wounds of family history. And I, I wonder if you sense that as well, that that's something that's there kind of in every family.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, families I think of as, as being sort of like um, miniature cultures. Mm. Um, and they develop over time. And there's always this kind of rich history. And that means that as in, you know, any kind of culture, um, there are shared memories that are happy ones that bind people together. And then there are also um, wounds. And, and those things are always kind of in tension with each other.
0: I love the idea of the family as a, as a culture and one that is constantly developing and, and changing. And I think that's so true. But it is such a funny it's such a funny moment, even though the kind of idea of this kind of empty charity feels like um, that we're understanding a, a problem of resentment that's going to be meaningful to Kate and her family going forward. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I quite fell in love with Kate reading these stories. Uh, there was so much about her honesty and her ethical, raw humanness that made me hunger to spend more and more time with her as a reader. I wonder how you began to imagine Kate um, and how you thought she would be as a character. And why did you decide to write a series of linked stories about her early adulthood?
1: I'm really happy to to hear that Um, you know I think honesty and complexity are two things that I really value in fiction along with precision and they're a reason that I I go to literature. Um, I wrote stories for a number of years before Kate presented herself as a character to me in a kind of explicit way Um, but when I looked back on those stories a number of them were about young women grappling with some of the same things that she grapples with in the book I think the first story in which she appears as as herself as Kate um, in terms of my own writing life would be You Never Get It Back, which the first draft of that I wrote in 2013. And um, by the time I put this collection together, I think I'd written and published around 20 stories and and written and put in the drawer many others Um And so the process of putting the book together um, initially involved taking some of the stories that I most wanted to put in a book and showing them to a few readers who are all also writers. Um, And two of those readers said that they liked the kind of um, varied nature of the collection, which was not at that point linked by character. And two other readers said it might be interesting because a number of these young women share attributes share struggles, it might be interesting to think about linking this by character. Mm. And at that point, you know, I thought, yeah, that feels right to me. And you never get it back. The story felt like the the center of the book in some ways, or the, the proper launching point, perhaps. And so then I I began a process both of revising some stories um, to make the characters in those stories um, into Kate, once I had sort of understood who she was. Um, and then I found that putting those stories together created a kind of electric charge and called into being some new stories um, that I began with Kate in mind.
0: That's so interesting because she feels incredibly consistent to me. So that the idea that she might have been another character that uh that was altered in some way to become Kate is is fascinating because they all feel so much of a piece of her. And not that there's not new, we don't not that we don't learn new interesting things about her or see new kinds of responses from her, but she feels very consistent.
1: That just thrills me because (laughs) um, I was terrified people would see the seams um, and I wanted the reading experience to feel seamless. Um, You know, I think there there's a collection I love by the writer, Matt Clam called Sam, the cat. Um, And in that collection, he explores you know, a character who feels very, you know, similar from story to story, but always has a different name and a slightly different biography. And I I don't mind that in those stories. It it feels in a way like he's examining the evolution of a certain sort of young man over time through these different um, fictive containers. Um, And so I I think that was perhaps there with those earlier stories that I was writing as well, a sense that I was examining some similar um, personalities and and questions. Um, But I also found that putting some of those stories together that I hadn't initially imagined as all being about Kate allowed me to build in some interesting um, complexities um, that I hope really enriched her character once I could retrospectively look back and begin to shape the book around her.
0: Whenever somebody writes a collection of linked short stories, the inevitable question is, why not a novel? This, for me, misses the point that novels and stories are fairly different in their structures and forms. I think maybe the more interesting question is, uh, what are the elements of the short story form that made it the best choice to tell Kate's narrative?
1: Yeah, it thrills me um, to hear you say that as well, because I really... I love fiction. I love the novel form. I love the story form. To me, they're so separate. Mm. Um, they're almost like different, um, you know, as different as poetry is from the novel or from nonfiction, for example, you know, I, I think that the relationship between material and form is a kind of, for me at least a dynamic one. And when I spend time reading and studying and thinking about a form material starts to suggest itself to me that is a natural fit with the form, often. Um, And, you know, I think that um, I was really fascinated by the story form and all the things that it could do and spent years, you know, reading them um, in college, after college, in graduate school and then I worked for five years as an editor at the Southern Review and I think the material began to shape itself to the story form in part as a result. Um, but I also think that there's something really incredible about the linked story form because it allows you to examine all of these discrete, important moments in a character's life over time in a way that can feel both very specific and very expansive, and it doesn't require that all of those moments be explicitly linked um, by a kind of narrative logic, which the novel may mm. require. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me it felt just like a, a really great way to explore um, you know, this, this bigger span of time in this character's life, her 20s, her early 30s, um, this kind of coming-of-age story that understands what it means to come-of-age I think a little bit more broadly, so it not being just a, a very delimited time um, in one's adolescence or early twenties, but but really a, a process that continues to unfold.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great description of about what I of what I like about linked stories, in that you can, um, in a particular story, broach. Um, a small, meaningful event in a character's life, and that event doesn't have to so explicitly or logically uh, link to this larger, broader, um, climactic event that a novel is is built around, and even novels that are very kind of quiet domestic ones, you know, it is Emma getting married, and at the end, and so everything has to logically fit into that. But because that doesn't exist uh, in a in a group of linked stories, we're able to invest in these individual climactic events much more richly, I think, even though, you know, I love novels and it's, it's my primary way of experiencing fiction. But when I'm reading stories, I love the kind of, um, the moment of small climactic event. And if it's linked to one in another story, um, I find that it's, it's great fun to connect the logical dots that don't have to be done by the the writer herself. I wonder if you see that in, you know, the choice to write those stories. Do you like to have those kind of climactic events that don't have to be all logically linked together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was Laurie Moore who said that the short story was an end-based form, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the novel is a sort of machine to keep you reading whereas the short story um, is this beautiful small complete um, container and the ending is just really really crucial in a short story Um, and after you finish a short story i think often you want to put the book down take a walk or just spend some time with your thoughts Um, you know there's a a sense of completion and intensity there Um, and i was thinking about the novels that i love the most um, One example would be Disgrace um, by Jam Kutseya, which does feel to me like it has a number of discrete movements and climaxes. Mm -hmm. And then also Rachel Cusk's Outline Trilogy. And something that I love there is that her main character, Faye, um, is a character to whom people tell stories and, and Faye listens. And often as people tell those stories to Faye, as they add events and information to the story its meaning seems to shift and what it reveals about the speaker seems to shift and um that feels so lifelike to me it feels dramatic because things are shifting and changing and um, new information is being revealed new sense is being made but it also feels very lifelike um, because there is no one single um, truth, um, no stable truth. And the sense that we make out of our lives, um, you know, there's always a different sense that one could be m- making. And so the, sh- the linked short story form, um, to me, allows for a similar sort of effect where you you give one event and then you give another event. And the meanings of those events seem to change by being juxtaposed or added. And there's this kind of a creative logic. Uh,
0: it's uh, it's interesting. Those two authors, and in particular, disgrace, um, have come up an enormous amount in my in my interviews as exemplary novels. And I think you beautifully described what is wonderful about both Rahman Alam, in particular. Uh, went on about how how much he was influenced and and compelled by Jamkotzia's disgrace, and it's a novel that for me too has been has been very important. And obviously, Cusk has. I mean, she's she's almost a genre unto herself at this point. I think. Yes. <laughs> um, if there's one driving theme in in your collection, it is the stark class divides that order life in the United States. Kate has achieved what might be called escape velocity from the incredible gravitational pull of her class limitations. She attends and graduates an elite university, and she's a budding academic researcher and and soon-to-be worker in the creative class. But like Leonard Bast in Howard's End, she's always circling close to the abyss of poverty, or at least thinking about the precariousness of the working class how do you see these stories as a gate engaging with that class in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, social class to me is a, a really fascinating question and, and maybe one that's slightly underexplored or under-discussed when it comes to fiction. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this question of um, stories about people experiencing poverty and precarity in the working class, and there are some really great books of you know, fiction about characters experiencing those things and, you know, contemporary American fiction. Um, There are fewer books about characters in that class position than there are about characters who are middle class, upper middle class, or wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And even fewer books about characters who move out of their social class from the working class or from poverty or precarity um, into the middle or upper middle class. To me, that kind of movement... um, is a really interesting one because it allows you to explore, um, you know, a, a kind of conflict that has to do with understanding the self in relationship to a social world, um, you know, in a way that hopefully illuminates what it means to be working class or poor, and then what it means to be middle class or upper middle class. I, I think contrast and tension are such effective ways um, to help us see things clearly. Um, and so for me that was one of the pleasures and challenges I think of of writing Kate is to to think about that um, and then also to think about how she carries her class background with her class is fascinating because you you can change social class but of course your class history remains and you remain mm-hmm. marked by it and that was certainly something I was interesting interested in capturing.
0: Yes, and in particular, the relationship between Kate and Agnes, her sister, is one that I think wonderfully for me defies a lot of expectations that we have about the character who might transcend class and the character who stays within her birth class. And I'm wondering whether you were conscious of needing to be careful that the sisters didn't become stereotypical as it concerns their class positions.
1: I certainly thought about the fact that sometimes when people write about working class or poor or precarious characters, and I I keep using various terms because I don't think we have a great or precise language around social class.
0: Uh, I agree.
1: Yeah. Um, There can be either a tendency to reduce those characters um, by using a kind of sentimental lens and not allowing them to really ever be mean or to fail in any real way or um, to just be as complex as people really are. Um, And there can also be a tendency to make those characters um, stand in for a kind of tragedy that feels bigger perhaps than their individual lives. And so I wanted all of my characters to feel complex and real and to allow them to experience right, a range of um, emotion in their own life and to express a, a range of characteristics in the way that real people do. And so with Agnes, you know, I, I wanted to think about what would compel her about the life choices that she makes. She chooses to become a mother when she's um, pretty young, for example, um, and she chooses to remain in the place where she's been born, which means in part remaining in her social class, Um, I do think in the book and in real life, there's often a a connection between geographic movement and and movement and social class. Um, But those things have real pleasures and and meaning and real rewards, too. And so I think I wasn't thinking overtly about stereotype in terms of the two sisters, but I was thinking about, again, complexity, precision, um, surprise, and, and meaning,
0: Well, you make Agnes incredibly funny, often uh, herself not meaning to be funny, without demeaning her. And in particular, that idea of her decision to keep a child that she initially um, thinks about uh, having an abortion, um, but ends up keeping the child and very deliberately um, allows for her to have kind of choice and agency and kate reflects that indeed she is a wonderful mother and she has you know made a uh, a deeply important choice for herself but she's also really funny and she makes um unintentionally really funny comments and observations about their their life and i just i i found her very delicately handled
1: happy to hear that yeah i you know i i love the moment for example when you know kate discovers that agnes is pregnant by reading about it on her myspace page and and, (laughs) she says about me preggers and then Um, a little bit lower. It says, you know, well, I get interested in things easily. It's the staying interested that's hard. Which <laughs> 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 obviously, it's it's difficult to think of a a sort of tougher attribute for someone about to undertake parenthood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sort of have to stay interested <laughs> for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, that seems um, a principal skill to have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and to me, of course, you know, Kate being the the big sister, she's. She's older. um, And so sometimes she can see things that Agnes can't see yet, but that perhaps Agnes will come to see when she's older, too. Um, So thinking about um, insight and observation as having to do not just with social class, but with age and life experience, for example, um, was something I was thinking about as I wrote.
0: The collection lives mainly in two very distinct geographies, the Northeast and the Southwest, with some of the South included. They are in some ways polar opposites in temperature, temperament, citizenry. Their features allow for Kate to reflect upon some of the major decisions in her life. Why these spaces, and how did you want them to resonate with Kate's evolution as a character?
1: Yeah, so the, um, you know, the the most um, sort of pragmatic or basic answer would be that I, I lived in both places. I grew up in New England, went to college in Massachusetts, and then worked in Boston for a number of years. And then I moved to Arizona um, for grad school. Um, but I've lived a lot of places. and And so the perhaps the better answer is that those were the two that compelled me the most, that interested me the most. And so they really became the two poles of the book. Um, I think that um, for me, living in Arizona helped me see New England more clearly as a landscape and as a culture. Mm. Um, And, you know, at first I felt very, um, very off put by the desert. Um, I remember visiting and feeling like I'd landed on the moon Mm -hmm. and, (laughs) <laughs> it totally
0: looks like the moon. Every time I go, I think it's a mo- a lunar landscape,
1: right? Yeah. It's so monochromatic and, um, dramatically bare <laughs> and barren. Um, and, you know, initially I, I wasn't sure that I, it was interesting. I, I, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to choose to live here in part because it feels difficult and in part because it feels like nothing I would ever experience in the course of my life ordinarily if I were not to make this choice Um, And I came to actually see the desert as really beautiful and interesting. I'm reading a book right now about Agnes Martin, the minimalist painter, and a curator in the 60s said of her paintings, he called them, um, grouped them with other paintings, he called the invisible paintings. And he said that those paintings required the eye to acclimate as it does to a dimly lit room. Hmm. I me, mean, the desert has a similar effect. It really retrains the eye and requires the eye to reacclimate, especially if you're coming from the Northeast, You know that kind of shady tangle of, of leaves, the complexity and the depth of color um, in contrast with the, the, um, the monochromatic desert. And the cultures are very distinct too. And so for me, as I thought about Kate's movement through life, Um, I liked the idea that she moves to the desert and it marks a kind of dramatic shift in her own life. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this process of experiencing alienation, but then also leads to curiosity and discovery and passion as well. And those things, I think, coexist for her. And and that to me um, is something that's echoed in the book, Um, sometimes in her relationships with other people, um, certainly in her relationship to social class. Um, And so I, I liked that kind of echo made, you know, very literal, I think, by the landscape and her movement through it.
0: I think you're absolutely fabulous at working with mood in your stories. There's never one ambient mood. You move seamlessly between tones and affects two or three times in a single story. For me, the title story, You Never Get It Back, is a masterwork of mood. There is uncertainty, expectation, discomfort, desire, creeping horror, and resignation. How do you work with mood in your work?
1: I think that when mood is shifting in a story, other things are shifting too. Um, I think it's a a sign that um, things are in motion and that the story um, is ready to surprise us. And, you know, I I think I think less about mood overtly. I think it arises from within the character, from what happens between characters. It can come from the outside world. It can also come from an alignment or a lack of alignment between the character and the outside world. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm thinking always about character um, and about change and surprise and complexity. And, And I think, too, that um, Dennis Johnson, for example, does this beautifully in life there, you know, in one situation, um, in one conversation, even, um, there's rarely just one reigning mood or emotion. Mm. Um, there's so much, um, movement and ambiguity and just multivalent emotions, I guess, multivalent emotions, even in the space of a single conversation. Um, I think it's interesting to think about which ones are coming to the forefront and then perhaps how to move a, a different one into the forefront, again, as a, as a way of continuing to surprise the reader, which I think is so much of the pleasure of fiction.
0: Dennis Johnson is truly the king of the unsettling mood shift, <laughs> the, the, the mood a shift from you know, humor and amusement uh, and absurdity to absolute horror. I I, I feel like he just is um, and was one of a kind in in making those shifts. And I, but I also agree with you very much that life is not a singular mood day to day, and even in an, you know very sad moments in our lives, we find uh, moments of, of humor and and joy. And so I am enjoyed it, especially in this story, um, those shifts. I, I mean, I'm, I'm revealing a little bit about that story, but there's an assault that comes at the end and it's very unexpected uh, and even more painful because it's a disruption of a certain story that Kate has told herself about her shared experiences in life with this other character, Paul. Um, did you struggle at all with how to stage that particular scene?
1: That story was an unusual one um, in that the ending came to me either first or very quickly after I began the story. I remember writing toward the ending, knowing what the ending would be. And one thing that I was very conscious of is wanting you know, the reader to respond to the Paul to Paul in the way that Kate does, which is to say, um, you know, with increasing interest and warmth, um, she experiences a sense of solidarity with him based in part on their social class. Um, And, you know, I think that um, when you experience solidarity with someone in a situation like that, where you feel um, perhaps, um, you know, that you occupy a position of less power or are marginalized in some way, then when that person fails you um, that can feel, I think even more shocking and upsetting and alienating than if someone fails you um, with whom you didn't experience that kind of solidarity and you had perhaps a greater wariness. Um, And so I I was thinking about that um, as I wrote the story, how to create that kind of solidarity between those two characters so that then that rupture, you know, would hopefully land with the reader the way it it does with Kate. Um, And she's left in this position of feeling like there's no one she can tell about the assault, Mm -hmm. Um, feeling very cut off and very isolated. And like what life is going to require of her as a young woman and as someone who has her class background will be silence. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a, it's a remarkable story, and that scene in particular is, is it's horrifying for the reasons that you share, um, but it also gives such insight into the, the loads that Kate carries on her shoulders, even though she does so with great dignity. I'm interested a little bit in your life as a creative writing professor and wanting to know um, what you might give as advice to your students about something you wish you had known at the beginning of the process of writing this collection.
1: One thing that I talk with them about um, is this idea that writing is a kind of extravagantly wasteful process. You know, and, and I think that, um, there's something beautiful about that because life as we live it, you know, has many moments that are mundane and, you know, routine and ordinary and fiction can contain those moments too, but fiction is so distilled. Art is so distilled. Um, you're, you know, you're hoping to take what's most interesting and engaging about life as a, as a human being in the world, um, you know, over the course of days and months and years and even a lifetime and to compress it into, you know, a very small container and give that to the reader. Um, So there's a kind of intensity that comes through that distillation. But that means, you know, um, both that you need to learn the art and you need to learn technique. And that's a process that's very time consuming. And also that you need to sometimes write and experiment and fail and put things aside. Um, And sometimes you need to live more, you need to spend more time in the world, or you need to observe the world more closely so that you have something to bring back to the page. And I think um, once you can make peace with that, and even maybe begin to enjoy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's happening that isn't directly ending up, you know, as finished words on the page, but that is, you know, the, the what needs to happen for that ultimately to happen, um, the better off you are. So that and then the fact that, you know, part of the writing process is managing <laughs> your emotions and, and the difficulty um, that's part of the writing process. And I think it can be very difficult to exist in that gap between um, learning how to do something on the page and then seeing you know, writers who you admire do that thing beautifully. And it seems like effortlessly. Um, And to be aware of that gap is crucial because that's how you grow and that's how you close that distance ultimately. Um, But I I think it can be surprising that so much of what's challenging about writing is really just training yourself to exist within that difficulty.
0: Mm, That's nicely said. I find it auspicious that Brandon Taylor was in fact the judge who selected your collection for the John Simmons Award. Despite the the very real difference in racial perspective between his real life and you never get it back, I find a great deal of commonality between your styles and interests. In particular, you invest in the idea of who precisely belongs in academia, and you also tell the story of leaving work in the sciences to become a writer. I wonder if you see those kinds of connections between your work and his.
1: Very much so. And in fact, I, I sent the manuscript to that contest um, largely because he was judging it. Um, and of course, because the, the series has just such an incredible reputation. And there are a number of books that I really love that were published through that series. But I'd never spoken with Brandon before sending the manuscript. I hadn't met him, but I'd read his work and um, read his nonfiction as well as his fiction. Um, And so I knew that we both loved Alice Munro and Mavis Gallant. We both value um, a kind of realism in fiction that's clear and precise and allows for complexity of character and plot um, to be conveyed to the reader as opposed to perhaps an emphasis on the complexity of the texture of the language. Mm -hmm. Um, not that we don't think very carefully about language, but, um, you know, I I think it's a slightly different emphasis perhaps. Um, and we both love, um, a lot of the same visual artists, which I think is interesting, like Joan Uh, Mitchell, for example. Um,
0: that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So I think our aesthetics are just very aligned. Um, and he's written as well um, in his fiction and nonfiction about um, growing up in a family that struggled with poverty. Um, and so I felt a kind of alignment and sympathy there. And some things that I had felt and observed about life that I'd maybe never seen articulated so clearly, he was articulating in his work. So um, so that was definitely a reason I decided to send the, the manuscript. And it was a reason I was just so thrilled <laughs> when he chose it. Um, It just felt really, um, really wonderful to imagine the sympathetic reader and then to find that he was indeed a sympathetic reader. It must have Um,
0: felt like (laughs) kismet.
1: Oh, it did. Yeah, it did. And that question of academia, you know, I think that social class is very interesting in the space of academia because that's a space where we imagine changing social class as possible. Mm. Uh, It's a space that that it in some ways is overtly structured to facilitate changing social class. But it's also a space where social class becomes perhaps um, more starkly apparent, both because there's a sort of artificial sense of egalitarianism, right? Students are all peers in theory, but there is this hierarchy of class that therefore perhaps becomes more visible. Um, and students are also living with each other, often in, in kind of intimate and close ways. that that can make those things more visible too. Um, And I think, you know, in that kind of academic space, we can also see the limits of social mobility, of class mobility. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's something that, that Brandon Taylor's exploring in his work and that I'm certainly exploring in mine.
0: Absolutely. And I think that one of my, one of my favorite genres is the campus novel. And so many of those works do Kind of delve into and touch upon the sore, the sore parts of uh, that kind of intimate living together in which those sort of class differences then become dissonant and difficult, and sometimes, in the case of Donna Tartt's work, murderous. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, uh, yeah, it's a. It's a genre that I think deserves more attention for the seriousness with which it takes um, that issue in academia. And we do have this kind of, there's this sheen over academia that it is the kind of classifier, but there's so much, there's so much more that's complex about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bunny is one of the one of my all time favorite characters. Oh
0: Canada. yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Um, are you working on something now that you might be able to share a little bit with uh, with us?
1: Yeah, I, I'm actually working on a few things at once, um, which is not unusual for me because I, I write over, I think, fairly long periods of time on a single project, kind of taking time away from it and coming back to it, which helps me see it more clearly. Um, so uh, a number of years ago now, I wrote... the the first draft of a book-length lyric essay project that grew out of my my anxieties about climate change and the sense that the the world is changing in this, for us, kind of unprecedented way. And my move to New York City, and I was just really missing a kind of connection to the natural world. Um, And then the question of whether to become a parent. And what change that would bring about in my own life, potentially in terms of solitude and um, my practice as a writer, and what it would mean to to bring another person into this world that is changing, where the very climate is changing. And, um, you know, I, I thought, well, one thing I want to do is to record the world very closely as it is now as a way of moving into the present moment more fully. And you know I was thinking if I was to have a child or you know I have an, a niece um you know who um, this would be true of as well i I want that person to to be able to read something that captures you know what it's like to be in Vermont in the winter time right mm-hmm. now because in twenty years or fifty years, who knows if we'll even have snow in Vermont anymore um So creating a kind of document of the world, a record of the world, felt important to me.
0: That sounds like such an important project. I I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. I tend to uh, end things by asking about uh, what you're reading now and whether you would share some of your recommendations for things that are already out or that you may have gotten a chance to read that are forthcoming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's, um, little that I love more. Uh, I've been recommending books. Um, me too.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I just reread two books, which won't be a surprise to readers. <laughs> um, but I, I just reread Play it As It Lays by Joan Didion. Um, and that's, of course, a kind of contemporary or modern classic. Um, but it landed with a new force for me. Um, reading it now, I think, both, of course, because she's just... Died, um, left us. And um, maybe because I think in our current moment, you know, gender and power are things that are very much on my mind in a perhaps slightly new way. So I recommend rereading that. I also just reread The Trial, which Mm. is somehow startling Mm -hmm. and new every time I reread it. Um, In terms of books that are not perhaps so familiar to a lot of readers, I really loved Optic Nerve by Maria Gainza, who's an Argentine writer. And that's, um, you could read it as a novel or as an interlinked collection of stories. And it's about a woman who's an art critic in in Argentina. Um, And the stories have a kind of essayistic quality while also being dramatic and satisfying. I thought that was just a fascinating and beautiful book. And she has a new novel coming out this year, which I'm looking forward to reading. Um,
0: I just got a um, an early copy of that. And it's, uh, you know, her her first one, Optic Nerve, was actually maybe the first or second book that I ever recommended on this podcast because I I loved it so much.
1: Oh, I hadn't realized that. That's terrific. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. I'm curious whether you've read Sarah Majka's Cities I've Never Lived In. No, I haven't. That's another terrific interlinked collection that I think of as being in conversation in some ways with um, Maria Gaines's work. Um, She's a writer, Sarah Magica, who writes about um, the Northeast. Many of her stories are set in Maine um, and poverty and arts and intellectual life and just really perceptive Ways. I think she's one of our, our best short story writers,
0: actually. Oh, wow. I, I will seek it out immediately.
1: Um, and then maybe one more book I would recommend that's coming up um, is Sarah Manguso's debut novel, Very Cold People. Um, that's
0: a great title.
1: It is, yeah. Um, I was joking in Twitter, on Twitter about how those are my people. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and she's, you know, she's a writer who began as a poet, wrote a number of works of nonfiction that are just startling in their intelligence, and their compression, and their humor. Sarah Manguso began as a poet and then wrote a number of books of nonfiction, which I think are really startling in their um, intelligence, their precision, their their humor. Their range and depth of emotion um, and their compression, and I'm really looking forward um, to seeing what she does
0: um, with her first book of fiction. Yeah, her nonfiction is just startling. I mean, it's <sighs> uh, it's probably you know one of a handful of nonfiction writers who I think are are truly changing the form.
1: Yeah, just exquisite work and and work that I think you know I. I teach one of her works of nonfiction, The Two Kinds of Decay, in a course that I teach on um, hybrid forms. And I think she borrows in just fascinating ways from the essay form, from poetry, and um, from fiction in writing her, her um, book-length nonfiction.
0: Well, that's exciting that she's got a new novel. I I will definitely have my eye out for it. Well, Kara, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation about a really wonderful collection. Uh, and I'm so excited for listeners to, to run out and, and get a copy from their local bookstore. I know they will love Kate as much as I did.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thanks. Well, that's all for me for now. My great thanks to the brilliant and funny Kara Blue Adams for a marvelous conversation. You can find links to purchase her book, You Never Get It Back, and all of her recommendations at our website, burnedbybooks.com, where you'll also find links to all my previous episodes, as well as merch for the show. Next week, I'll be interviewing one of the preeminent voices in American fiction, Percival Everett about his new novel, The Trees. I hope you'll join me then. This has been Burned by Books.